Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome into episode 10 of the Landscape Photography Show. I think the normal progression of things at this point would say, man, I can't believe we're already at 10 episodes. But honestly, I can believe that because I've been working behind the scenes, recording episodes, talking to some of my favorite photographers, your favorite photographers, suggestions of photographers that the guests have led me to. So it's really been a whirlwind and 10 episodes seems really small to the amount of work that's been going on behind the scenes. But I just want to thank you for all the subscribers, all the downloads, all the good reviews, all the good comments, the guests for coming on. It's been a huge success so far. It's going to continue to grow just like today's episode is going to be amazing. On this episode, we have Josh Cripps, one of my favorite photographers, one of my inspirations when I started in photography and just someone who I look up to a lot in photography in general. The main takeaway that I want you to get from this episode is storytelling within your images. And we're going to talk a lot about that throughout this interview. And Josh has just phenomenal advice for you on storytelling in your photography, how to create a good story, how to photograph with mood, how to make something great out of something that maybe you didn't really want to see in a landscape, like a bright blue sky. How do you make something great out of that? So I do want to say too, all of the things that we're going to be talking about, links and all that, are going to be at davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash Crips, that's C-R-I-P-P-S. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, everybody? We are here with Joshua Cripps. He's joining the podcast today. Uh, We've talked to Josh in the past. Josh, why don't you like give us background on yourself, um, your crazy busy schedule, what you've been up to lately, and kind of like your background in photography? Sure thing, man. Yeah, so I got into photography kind of by accident. Uh, I was studying engineering, and I got super burned out on school, so I started doing a bunch of traveling after I finished my degree, and it made me realize how, uh, one, how cool the world is, how many amazing experiences there are out there, and two, how totally, totally incapable I was of conveying my experiences to my friends and family back home. And so that got me thinking, you know, about uh, photography and writing and, and how can I get people to feel what I'm feeling when I'm out in these wonderful, beautiful places. And that's how the seed of photography got planted. Um, I ended up uh, getting back to engineering and working for a couple of years for Boeing, doing satellite design. But in the meantime, I picked up a camera and started taking pictures and I was frustrated in the beginning. I thought, oh my gosh, these photos are terrible. I thought with this great camera, they were going to be easy to take, Uh, but they were just really, really (laughs) hard. So, well, how can I solve this problem? Uh, That's the engineering mindset to anything, right? How can I solve this problem? And so I started to read books and find articles online about, you know, aperture and shutter speed and why you would pick one over the other. And 
studied a bunch of photographers, particularly Galen Rowell, and learned about composition and light and why certain kinds of compositions work and kinds of compositions that don't and why certain light works for these kinds of photos. And, and it really just started to infect me to a, uh, I mean, almost an, you know, a obsessive level. That's all I wanted to ever want to do is take pictures. And so then I kind of fell into, uh, uh, professional photography by accident. I uh, got tagged to help lead a couple of, uh, photo tours around Yosemite and I started uh, selling some prints at local uh, farmers markets and art and wine fairs and things like that in L.A. And just casually making a couple hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there. And then Boeing decided they needed to lay off 10 percent of their workforce. This was way back in 2008 when the housing market uh, crashed. So I thought, you know what, what a good opportunity to try and see if I can turn this hobby into something more than a hobby. And, um, of course that was an incredibly naive viewpoint. I wish that I had taken two years to study business and marketing first before I made the jump. But, uh, you know, you learn by uh, trial by fire and by being too stubborn and by banging my head against the wall a million ways from Sunday. Um, <laughs> but eventually got to a point where, yeah, after about four years of part-time photography, I was, uh, I ended up making a full transition and, uh, through various things, through selling prints, through teaching workshops, uh, selling courses online. Um, that's how I started to make a living as a photographer. And then over the past few years, that's been uh, transitioning as well to public speaking and, um, and uh, speaking at conferences. For example, we just had a conference in Mammoth, where I live in California, um, the called the Mammoth Photo Festival, and I was an organizer for that. So that was my very first conference that I organized. Ton of fun. But then just coming up the, this month in October, I was giving two talks at Photo Plus Expo, then three talks at the Nature Visions uh, Expo, and uh, so yeah, that's been a fun transition to get into because I really do love teaching. Um, and, and so yeah, that's mostly what I'm doing now is tours and teaching and online courses and uh, and just helping people love photography as much as I do it specifically nature photography uh, landscape photography is my is my true passion uh, so that's pretty much where I came from why my schedule seems to be so busy now there's always 150 projects trying to happen simultaneously uh, but it's fun I, I don't think I would uh, I wouldn't change it because I love the freedom that you get when you uh, work for yourself and you can decide what you want to work on, when you want to work on and where you want to work on it. Isn't it funny though? Like we all kind of start the same way. Like even those photographers that you look up to, you see them as these professionals and even like yourself, it, it's almost like people think that professional photographers come out of the womb with a camera in their hand and, and are just ready to roll and hit the ground running. But really we, we all started the same way. Yeah, absolutely. People just start with a passion for something. And then, I mean, honestly, I don't know anybody who is, as a working photographer who decided from the get go, I want to be a professional photographer. Therefore I'm going to learn photography Everybody started with this passion for making images and then kind of fell into the business by accident. And the other thing that amazes me is the, the vast 
variety of genres and the uh, imposter syndrome isn't quite the right word but uh, let me give you an example of what I mean so last year uh, or earlier this year I was giving a talk at the consumer electronics show and I was sharing the stage uh, the Nikon stage with some really incredible photographers some of today's best contemporary photographers like Joe McNally uh, there's an amazing mm -hmm. wedding wedding photographer named Jerry Guionis who lives in Vegas and uh, and Jerry gave a talk about his wedding and portrait photography and how he does what he does. And his images are stunning and, and his, his eye for shape and light and uh, interaction between people and the way that he gets expressions from people and the way that he can position bodies to convey a message or convey a certain feeling. It's incredible. And I watched his talk and I just think, gosh, there's no way I could ever do this. I feel so comfortable with what I do. I can walk out into the woods and take a picture of a mountain and, and be totally stoked. But if you were to ask me to put two people together and create a, an award-winning winning wedding photo, I'd be totally sunk, right? This guy, I look up to this guy as this incredible talent in the industry. And then, you know, uh, maybe an hour or two later, it was my turn to get on the stage. And I gave my talk about why I love photographing in terrible weather and why I deliberately put myself in thunderstorms and, and downpours and hailstorms because on the other side of it, you get these incredible you know, rainbows and mammatus clouds getting hit by a sunset and wonderful, wonderful things like that. And I can make an image all day like all day long in conditions like that. And, and Jerry, this same photographer, happened to be watching the talk and he came up at the end and he was like, how the heck do you do some of this stuff? Like I, <laughs> I could never, ever do the things that you do. So that was just another really interesting tweak to the whole thing of you look up to these people, you, you know, you lionize them and, and they're at the same time, they're, they're going, Oh man, I feel, you know, I almost as lost as everybody else. I just had this one little niche where I'm very comfortable, but outside of that, I'm as clueless as anybody else is. Is it easy for you as a photographer to, like learn from things like that? Can you learn from people in other genres and pull it into your own style? A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so one, one thing that I've really learned that I've taken away from interactions like that is it's given me a ton more confidence about my own work. The first time I ever went to give a presentation, you know, and I'm sharing the stage with with Joe McNally and Corey Rich and these incredible. I'm going. I don't belong here. What am I doing mm. here? These guys are mm -hmm. legendary. What the heck am is little old Josh Cripps doing on the stage with these people? And then the more we talked about it, the more I realized, you know what? They they just have that same feeling. They're maybe a couple years farther along than I am. Um, and so to hear people like that, like Jerry, say, "Oh man, yeah, I could never do what you do." Um, it, one, it just gives me a lot more confidence in what I am doing, um, which it's it's kind of a neat transformation to have gone through over the past five years from what am I doing on this stage to, well, I'm so stoked that I get to be here to share the thing that I love, the thing that I'm good at with all these other people and try to get them as stoked as I am. So that's what been one big takeaway. Uh, but more to the point of your question, I really do 100% believe that cross-pollination between genres is really important. Um, I feel like in the landscape world, we tend to 
be a little more insular perhaps because it's such a solitary uh, pursuit. And I notice that we, we get a little bit of an echo chamber going on and people tend to start processing everything the same way or they start composing everything in the same style or they start visiting the same locations and shooting the same shots. And you get this very repetitive uh, just feedback loop that happens in the landscape photography industry. And, and over the past few years, that started to bother me more and more because I was in Colombia a couple years ago. And I was in this amazing place called the Kokora Valley. It has these wonderful wax palm trees. They're about 200 feet tall, the world's tallest palm trees. They're very beautiful trees. And I was wandering around very happily taking photos of this place. Uh, but there was this sort of niggling thing itching at me that the more I thought about it, the more I came to realize these photos that I'm creating, they don't really matter. Uh, I'm not doing anything unique from this place. I mean, I'm taking the Josh Cripps spin on the Kokora Valley, but it's not really a groundbreaking kind of photograph. And I don't have any personal connection to that place. I just happened to show up there as a photography tourist, essentially, and wanted to tr create pretty pictures. So I wasn't contributing anything meaningful in terms of um, – helping people understand the place because I didn't understand it. I was brand new to it. And later I found out, you know, there are a lot of um, conservation issues there, people clearing out the native jungle so that you can, you know, it's easier for grazing and it's easier for tourists to go experience these palm trees. And I thought, what am I really doing just by bouncing from beautiful place to beautiful place, trying to take pretty pictures? Like, there's got to be something more meaningful than that in the world of photography. And so I started to get much more invested in the idea of storytelling and trying to understand how the decisions that I make for my photographs uh, affect the story I'm trying to tell. And I think even on a superficial, I mean, this uh, manifests itself in a lot of ways, but for example, on a superficial level, like I know it's really fun to process images really dark and moody and dramatic. And it looks really cool, but I, I noticed that there was a bit of a dissonance between the stories that I was seeing in a lot of photographers' images, including my own, and the stories that they were telling with their words. So uh, you see these things like, okay, I was hiking through, um, I was hiking through thunderstorms all afternoon, and then all of a sudden at sunset the sky broke open and this amazing light flooded the valley. And I found this beautiful patch of wildflowers, and I was just ecstatic. I was over the moon with with the change in the the weather and the change in the mood. And I created this photo uh, to capture the moment. And that's like a very exalting, uplifting kind of story, you know. You walk through the weather, and it sucks, and then this beautiful thing happens, and your mood elevates and skyrockets, and your dopamine's pumping, and it's wonderful. And then you look at the photo, and the photo is dark and dramatic and super heavy contrast and it, and it like this to me stopped making sense uh between the story that the image is telling and the story of the actual emotion and the story of the experience and i wanted to start to put that feeling that story into my decisions as a photographer it, one just for aesthetics like that but two 
to maybe start to tell some more meaningful stories um, about these places that we visit as photographers and how our our lifestyle impacts them. Like, for example, where I live uh, in the Owens Valley in, in California, it's basically a desert valley. And uh, most of the water that's in the valley is actually owned. The water rights are owned by Los Angeles. And because they came up a hundred and something years ago and bought all the water rights from all the ranchers and farmers and kind of a shady deal. Uh, but they own the water now. And so if you go visit the Owens River, there are basically big signs everywhere that say property of Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. And in fact, Mono Lake, which is just up the road from my place, uh, one of the most famous locations in the West for landscape photography. The only reason those Tufa Towers that are so famous, the only reason they're exposed is because of the diversion of all the streams flowing into Mono Lake were being diverted for water use in Southern California. And that caused the level of the lake to drop and the tufas to be exposed. And I don't think a lot of people know that. And they don't know the relationship between the development and the lifestyle that we have in California and this, uh, these mountainy areas. And so I want to start being able to tell those kinds of stories with my photography to help people understand a little bit more about the meaning of the landscape and why it's important to pay attention to. And I think the only way to do that is to look at people who are really good storytellers, like photojournalists and adventure sports photographers, and understand the techniques that they use to convey certain things in their images, and not just single images, right? Like it's, uh, it's one thing to try to tell a story, a complete story in a single photo, but when was the last time you looked at National Geographic and they had a single photo to illustrate the story they're trying to tell? No, it's a myriad of photos of all kinds of different things. The landscapes, the details, the people, the interactions, the effects, the byproducts. It's really trying to create a series of images that are e edited he very heavily, not in a post-processing way, but edited like you would edit a story to try to tell a complete image. So I do think it's really important to look at these other genres to understand the techniques that are effective uh, to, to more meaningfully and more completely tell the stories that we want to tell as landscape photographers. That's, that's a really good point. And it's, and it's funny that you openly share that because that's two of the topics that I really wanted to ask you about. Um, and, and just to throw like my own experience and, and, and somebody that I look up to is a wedding photographer. His name is Tyler Workin. I don't know if you've heard of him before. Um, but he does an amazing job of documentary style wedding photography. And it's really something that I've tried to occasionally work into, you know, if I go to a familiar landscape, uh, or if I go to a new place, just totally new to me, and I've never seen it before, I try to work it in where you you get your typical wedding shots of, you know, the bride, the the bouquet of flowers. Yeah, everybody's seen those types of things. He does things a little bit differently of like a dirty dress that's laying on the floor at the end of the night next to a half eaten, you know, Big Mac on the floor or uh, one of the stories that he's told me before is, is one of the, the bride's father had, uh, died 
a couple months before the wedding and he included a portrait in a frame of her father in every single one of the photos so that he could be present in the wedding. And it was just, it was an amazing story that he told a way to think differently about photography. But for you, when you're working on story versus mood versus, you know, your perception of a location and a landscape, do you find yourself having an internal struggle of, you know, this would make like a really great, like classic landscape photograph versus this is the story I want to tell? Or do you find those interlapping with each other? I think if you'd asked me that question a couple years ago, they there would have been a conflict because I was pretty heavy into what I think a lot of landscape photographers do when they first start shooting is they get addicted to wide angle grand landscapes under, you know, the most epic skies possible. And, and you go out and you look for that and you want that to happen. And if that doesn't happen, I'm I'm speaking only for myself, but I believe this affects other people as well is you start to think, Oh, there's nothing to shoot here. These aren't the conditions that I wanted to see. Therefore, there's nothing to shoot here. And it has taken me a little bit of uh, maybe maturing and maybe just photographing in conditions that I used to think were quote unquote bad conditions and and still wanting to shoot that has has helped me change my perspective a little bit away from the I'm going out there trying to create a specific vision of a photograph that I have in my head and more towards I'm going to go out there and I'm going to see what story the landscape is telling me and I'm going to do my best to be receptive of that to not have any preconceived expectations which is almost impossible to do I find but I still try the hardest thing and it's incredibly difficult. And even if you're not aware of your expectations, you do realize when you get out to a, a place to start shooting, whether or not you've got them, uh, because you'll feel the like, Oh, this isn't, it just hits you this emotional disappointment. Uh, even if you're consciously telling yourself, okay, I'm going to be open to whatever is there. It, it, it's very hard to get rid of those, but, um, that's really been a big, uh, choice and a big challenge of mine over the past few years is to look at photography and look at the landscape more from that point of view. Uh, And in fact, one of the, one of the stories that I'm going to be telling in my presentation this week at photo plus expo or is uh, about an experience just like that, that we had in New Zealand last month, I was there on a photo tour with uh, John Barclay and we were visiting the Wanaka Willow, and we photographed two sunrises at the Wanaka Willow, which is pretty famous location in the landscape photography community. And whether or not you realize it, there is sort of a, an accepted way to photograph the Wanaka Willow, right? You're supposed to go there in fall when it's covered with bright golden leaves. And you're supposed to go there when the lake level is really high, so it's covering up the base of the tree. And you're supposed to go there at sunrise when there are clouds in the sky, so you can get an epic color show off behind the tree. That's how you're supposed to do it. And we got there in early spring for them, 
And not only were there no golden leaves on the tree, there weren't any leaves on the tree. It was just pure empty branches. And because it was early spring, there hadn't been enough snow melt yet to fill up the lake. And so the lake level was super low. It was actually out past the trunk of the tree. And there were just these ugly puddles and pools kind of scattered around on like a mucky, rocky shore. It wasn't very aesthetic. And there weren't really any clouds in the sky at all. And so our group was, you could feel the the disappointment kind of smack them in the face when we got there because they have this idea of what it's supposed to be when we get there. And it's nothing like that at all. And so we thought, well, you know, we can sure try and force that classic Wanaka tree shot to happen but it probably isn't going to with these conditions. So what can we do instead, you guys, instead of being super bummed out that this isn't what it's supposed to be, let's look at what it actually is. And what we started to realize was, well, there's no leaves on the tree, uh, but that means the branches are just form these beautiful, really graphic shapes. And um, there was fresh snow on the mountains behind, and you could create this wonderful contrast between the graphic shapes of the tree branches and the mountains behind it. And it's not a classic picture of the Wanaka tree, but we all have these really cool abstract intimate photos and nobody's ever going to look at that and realize, Oh, that's a photo of the Wanaka willow. And, and so these photos are, I think quite beautiful, not just from their aesthetics, but also because one they're they really represent our experience from that morning. They're very unique and they're personal to our group from that day because we were looking for you know what's there and so another thing we did was we ended up just taking our cameras off the tripods and shooting from literally on the ground we just plopped the, our cameras straight down on the ground and that compressed the ugly pools and mucky rock and stuff in the mid-ground completely got it out of the photo threw the foreground out of focus created this beautiful framing elephant uh, ele element <laughs> um, or and now the tr uh, yeah framing elephant i gotta t take a picture of one of those one of these days um, hey, an elephant at the willow would be a wild that, shot that would be amazing incredible absolutely um and so now instead of the tree kind of blending into the mountains it's sticking up into the sky in this very beautiful way um and yeah we didn't have any clouds at sunrise but that just meant when the sun actually came up there was nothing to block the light and this beautiful, I mean, incredibly golden light hit the tree. And so now you have the whole tree turning bright gold. Uh, these out of focus, these soft focus rocks in the foreground are bright gold. And the sky is this wonderful deep blue. And it has a couple of wispy clouds in it. So you have this incredible contrast now between this golden landscape and the blue sky. And these photos were beautiful, so gorgeous. And everybody was so pumped and so stoked in the group. To be able to shoot photos like this that tell a completely different story than the one that we they had in their you know we had them in our minds when we arrived this is how we're supposed to shoot this scene we all came away with these these photos that represented the actual experience the actual uh, personal unique moment that we were able to have there and the photos are reflective of that and I think that because of that they really tell a, a better story. And I think 
whether or not they're aesthetically more beautiful than the classic Wanaka tree shot maybe is debatable, but I think they're better photos because they really represent what was there and what we saw and what the landscape was telling us instead of trying to force it to fit into this little preconceived idea of how that shot is supposed to be. Hey, I just want to pause the interview real quick to talk about today's sponsor. That's visualwilderness.com, a website where you can find tons of resources to help you improve your photography from articles to post-processing courses to infield courses. You can get a subscription to have access to everything on the site, or you can just purchase whatever you want to pick and choose from the courses. I'm a contributor to that site and as a sponsor gift for you as a listener, all of my courses right now for a limited time are 33% off. If you use the code David33 during checkout, you can get 33% off of those for a limited time. So go ahead and snatch those up. You can find those links on davidjohnstonart.com slash podcast slash crips. I don't want to take up too much of your time away from this interview because it's getting really good. So right now, back to my interview with Josh Cripps. Is there a hesitation in taking this approach of mood and story and emotion and including it into your photography and vulnerability like are people hesitant to do this because they are also hesitant to be vulnerable in sharing their images i think so i mean perhaps to some extent anyway it's it's a hard thing in any aspect of life to really boldly say this is who i am and this is how i see the world we all struggle with that, right? It's real. It's nice to go along with the group. It's nice to agree with people, uh, even if it's just something as simple seeming as a photograph. To get to a place that is you've seen these epic photos of, and then to come away with something totally different and say, "No, this was my experience of that place of Mount Cook National Park of Fiordland or whatever the place happens to be." I I do I think people are perhaps a little hesitant to. Um, to showcase that because um, I mean, there is a lot of pressure in, in a manner of speaking, whether it's our own, um, you know, applied to ourselves or not, but you can see that that's what one of the big complaints before uh, a lot of people started jumping ship of 500 PX is it stopped being about personal expression and it started being about, how can I simply create a photo that I know is going to get a lot of feedback and traction from the community? And I don't think you need a clearer indication than that, than people are, I don't know if afraid is the right word, but at least less willing to share something very personal uh, about how they see the world. But that's the ironic part is the reason that these kinds of photos become so popular, certain artists certain photographers become so popular is because they're, they're sharing their very specific vision of how they see the world. And people are drawn to that when you have a really, you know, confident photographer say, this is 
how I see the world. And I think it's beautiful that way. Uh, you know, people are drawn to that approach. And you can see that even outside the landscape photography community. The photographers who have become the most successful in a lot of ways and gained the most traction, Lizzie Gad, I think, is a perfect example of this. You know, Lizzie Gad? Mm hmm. These amazing self-portraits, right? And she started photography not to emulate what other people were doing, but simply she wanted to learn more about photography. So she undertook a 365 self-portrait, self-imposed project. And by the end of it, she was creating these, she was, she really understood a lot about who she was, what she was drawn to personally and artistically. And it's really interesting if you ever have a chance to see her talk. She shows these images from the beginning of her project that are very classic self-portraits, right? She'll be out in a field of flowers, nice bright light, blah, 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 and it looks very warm and inviting. And by the end of the project, she's understood 100% that what she's drawn to is more of the ethereal, the foggy, the moody conditions that reflect maybe a more... Uh, introspective or introverted view of the world. Um, and now, of course, she does have images where they do feel quite joyful, but her, her photos generally are characterized by this mood and kind of a somber tone. And she's developed such a strong voice in photography by doing, by listening to herself and following her own vision. And now people are seeing that and going, holy crap, this is incredible work. I want to learn how to do this as well. And I think people have that kind of impact when they are willing to really put themselves out there and, and say, this is how I see the world. Uh, so I'm hopeful that more photographers you know, will do that. And, and who knows, maybe it's just a journey that we all take. I know that I, for sure, when I was learning, it was, I wouldn't say copying, 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 but Simulate. I'm trying to replicate what I've seen before as a successful photograph and it helps you understand the world or helps you understand photography a little bit more easily, right? If you go, okay, I see this composition that somebody else has done and I really love it. So if I go back and I shoot the same composition, I can at least compare my photo to their photo and take one variable out of the equation as to why mine is maybe better, worse, different, whatever than their image. Um, so that can be useful in that regard, of course. But then I think you get to a point where you start to think, uh, I need to, I, I have all the tools now. I know how to capture my vision of the world. It's just being able to actually do that, showcase it, and, and bring it to people in a confident way. Has it helped you fall in love or, or enjoy your photographs more? Yeah, I think that's a really insightful question because when you have expectations, you're most likely to become disappointed. When you have no expectations mm -hmm. and you're simply open to the beauty around you, whatever it may be, then you can be delighted by everything. Right. You don't have to go, oh, well, if only it was like this or if only it was like that, then I would be happy. No, you get to say, wow, look how cool that is. You know, um, let me think of, a, of another example. We were uh, we were at Doubtful Sound on the same tour. Yeah. And we did an overnight cruise and 
we were a little bit worried about the weather because you know we had to make our booking way in advance, and so we were stuck with whatever happened. And when we got on the boat for this overnight cruise, it was pouring rain and it was blowing forty or fifty knot winds. I think the captain said, and so it was just traditionally miserable conditions for photography. And you're on a moving boat, right? So. You, it would be so easy to just shut down and go, well, if only we had, you know, clear skies. Because the last time that I did a cruise out there in Doubtful Sound, I had amazing, just puffy clouds all afternoon. It was so much fun, really classic landscape conditions. We didn't have that. We had rain, sideways rain, and then it ended up snowing and hailing, and it was freezing cold. But it was so cool to be out there with the group because they'd never been there before. So everything was new to them. and what we did have instead of bright sunny skies and puffy clouds were these amazing, beautiful layers of the fjords just disappearing into the fog in the distance. And it had this wonderful moody feel to it. That was, you know, you could look at the scene and it felt like a, a some kind of impressionist painting, just looking at it. And, and our group was, they were so pumped they were running around this boat, wiping the water off of their lens, shooting out the bow, shooting out the stern, just running upstairs, downstairs, capturing this incredible scenery. And I mean, they were they were people weeping uh, on the, actually the second day of the trip because uh, we ended up did having a little bit of the storm clear out, and we had fresh snow, and there were beams of light. This time. I mean, it was really beautiful. But even during the rainy portion of the trip. It was it was a it was a total highlight of the entire tour. People were just it was such a unique place in such amazing conditions and this wonderful wonderful feel to to it. And by really embracing that, it, people were delighted. They were just delighted by the beauty that was there instead of being disappointed by the beauty that was not there, that was supposed to be there, that they were looking for. They just really were able to take it at face value and enjoy what was being offered. And and for me, that's 100% the same. I, I really find that now it doesn't matter what kind of conditions I go out and shoot in, whether I'm in bright, sunny skies in the middle of the day. If I'm really paying attention and just looking for what's speaking to me, I can find something cool and I'll get engrossed in whatever I'm doing. And then, you, you know, three hours later, you look up and you've been photographing a dandelion at, you know, 500 millimeters or something in the bright sunshine. And you go, hey, that was really cool. And now I have a better understanding of dandelions and I'm in a great mood because I've been out photographing outside instead of being, oh, well, there's no clouds in the sky and it's the middle of the day. So I'm not going to shoot. I'm just going to harumph around. Uh, so it makes a huge for me, it's made a massive difference to my enjoyment of not only photography, but just the outdoors in general and being outside. Yeah, I think too, shedding expectations of, of style of photography, even going into a location like going to shoot fall foliage. I mean, you have beautiful colors all around you, but who's to say what the right way to do that is? Maybe the mood that's speaking to you is black and white. Maybe uh, the, the thing that you feel you should be doing is something like a time-lapse or a high-key photograph, something like that. Just speaking to your own experience in photography, I, I think speaks to the same note as what you were just talking about too. Absolutely, it does. 
Yeah, and that can be tough when you're in a group, but um, we when we're on a tour, um, I, I generally lead these now with uh, John Barclay, and we really try to make that expectation uh, clear from the beginning that this is a no pressure situation. You shoot what you know what speaks to you, what what makes your heart sing. That's what you should be photographing, regardless of what anybody else is doing. And it's so fun then to get to the end of a trip like that. And we start to share images and people will, you'll, they'll send something. We always do a, like a WhatsApp chat group for, the, for mm-hmm. the tour and people will send their images across in the WhatsApp group. And you look at it and you go, I, I never even noticed that whatever, you know, I just, I never saw that little leaf. Um, in fact, one of the guys on our trip, he had this incredible photo of these ferns um, in the forest and it was just this tiny little patch. You would have never noticed it otherwise. And to, to reach it, he had to lean out over this railing and point his camera straight down, try to maneuver it around. And like, gosh, I, I never would have even seen that. And it's one of my favorite photos that I've seen that are from our group. It's just a, it's really striking, great colors, super beautiful, just this tiny little thing. And, you know, 10 feet away, there's a gigantic waterfall pouring down over all these rocks making these beautiful cascades and that's typically what people like to shoot there uh, because it's very impressive but he just walked up 10 feet farther pointed his camera straight down and found something that nobody had had seen before um, so that that's really really cool to see those different perspectives come out in the end well josh thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast and honestly making my job so easy. I think I asked like maybe three questions the entire time. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, and we'll have to have you back on cause I have a list of other questions I'd love to ask you in the future. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate it a lot. Um, this was very timely. I, I think that a lot of photographers in our cohort are starting to get on board with this idea of slower approach to photography, storytelling approach to photography and telling more meaningful stories. So really happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about that uh, because I'm really excited to see where our landscape photography peers are going to take things in the next couple of years and the stories that we're going to be able to tell and the the things we're going to understand about our natural world 